This podcast was recorded Thursday, November 16th at 10.33 a.m. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Like the U.S. Supreme Court will finally develop a code of ethics, but declined to mention who would enforce it and what the penalties would be. Oh, oh wait, that happened this week. Let's talk politics. This is Snollygoster, WOSU Public Media's weekly look at Ohio politics and all those Snollygosters, those shrewd politicians who look to upend constitutional principles if an election does not go their way. I'm Mike Thompson. Coming up in the podcast, upping the ante on those silly OSU Michigan political bets. But first, it has been more than a week since Ohio voters convincingly approved an amendment to the state constitution that guarantees the right to an abortion up until the point of fetal viability. Supporters and opponents of abortion rights are trying now to figure out their next steps. Democratic lawmakers propose changes to state law that would eliminate the 24-hour waiting period and required transfer agreements between clinics and local hospitals. The lawmakers did not file anything that would change the state's parental consent laws. As for opponents to abortion rights, Legislative leaders have not said much about their strategy, but four Republican lawmakers propose a law they say would strip Ohio judges, including members of the Ohio Supreme Court, of their power to interpret the abortion rights amendment. They say they want to, quote, prevent mischief by pro-abortion courts with issue one. They want to, quote, remove jurisdiction from the judiciary over this ambiguous ballot initiative. Now, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but lessons from my elementary school civics class tell me this might not be allowed. And even House Speaker Jason Stevens has his doubts. You know, this is schoolhouse rock type stuff. We need to make sure that we have the three branches of government and um, the Constitution is what we abide by. I'm just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill. Schoolhouse Rock lessons are to be listened to here. Thankfully, we have a constitutional scholar to explain what lawmakers can and cannot do with this issue. Dan Coble is a law professor at Capitol University in Columbus. Dan, welcome to Snelly Goster. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Dan, let's take this step by step. Uh, from a legal perspective, was the language of this constitutional amendment that voters just passed is it ambiguous? I really don't think it's ambiguous. Uh, it is really using very common language to explain to courts what situations uh, would exist whereby the state could regulate abortion. And it spells them out quite clearly, which was one of the criticisms that Attorney General Yost made of the amendment. He, he said it was almost too clear by spelling out the only types of regulations that could be implemented by the legislature. It specifically does allow the legislature to regulate reproductive freedom as long as they demonstrate that they are using the least restrictive means to advance the individual's health consistent with widely accepted evidence-based standards of care. That's very clear, and in fact, clearer than many uh, Supreme Court opinion standards whereby laws would be evaluated. 
by their nature, aren't amendments to constitutions, whether it be the federal constitution or the state constitutions around the country, even city charters, perhaps, aren't they by design supposed to be a little ambiguous? I mean, to a degree to allow lawmakers, city council members, members of Congress to use that as a guide rather than, a, you know, a rubric, so to speak? Well, that's exactly right, Mike. Constitutions, at least in the American tradition, are written more broadly and leaving room for the constitutional provisions to be interpreted consistently with evolving events. Uh, you know, take, for instance, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It doesn't say, here are the situations you could deprive people of uh, their life or liberty in. It leaves it for uh, a more open sort of provision that the courts could implement. However, the problem with using that kind of broad language, particularly in Ohio, where you have an, uh, a majority on the Supreme Court that's likely hostile and has gone on record, at least three of the justices have said that they are opposed to abortion rights. The drafters of the amendment could not opt for that kind of broad language. So I think they spelled things out much more clearly so as to give guidance to the courts and ensure that they aren't going to be able to interpret reproductive freedom rights away. Yeah, and you saw that in the approval process. The attorney general, when he approved the language for the petition and the, for the ballot language, um, he didn't make any changes. He said, this is, this is what it is. And then the ballot board put it on the ballot with really no changes. It was a unanimous bipartisan vote by the ballot board. Now, the ballot board did tweak the language a bit in the late stages of the of the process, you know, changing the word fetus to unborn child. But the fact that the attorney general and the ballot board pretty much signed off on this language early on, again, leads to the theory that this language was pretty clear and not ambiguous. Yes, I do think it's clear. And the thing that you have to remember is that when a court implements a standard like the U.S. Supreme Court did, they had said that there was a fundamental right to terminate a pre-viability pregnancy as long as the state does not, uh, uh, but the state could regulate as long as they didn't put an undue burden mm -hmm. on that. Now, the problem with that broad sort of language is that once the composition of the court changed, the... Uh, uh, justices on the court who were less interested in reproductive freedom started interpreting that more and more broadly in favor of the states. So the drafters of Ohio's amendment did not want to fall into that trap and say, well, let's use just the exact same language the Ohio or the U.S. Supreme Court has, um, you know, and use, say, undue burden, because that's too amorphous. So they basically said, hey, if you want to regulate regulate in a way that actually protects a woman's health consistent with actual evidence, not just any sort of uh, assertion that yep. this is consistent with health. Let's get to this jurisdiction question. Is there any way lawmakers can eliminate judicial review of laws, which is what these four lawmakers propose? 
Yeah, I uh, have been interviewed about this. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dean uh, uh, Steve Steinglass, who's an authority on the Ohio Constitution, um, He's up you in know, Cleveland, looked yeah. at, that looked at yeah. this as well. Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, basically, this seems in consistent completely with any notion of separation of powers, because what we have to recognize is that the Ohio Constitution is a limit on the Ohio General Assembly. So for the General Assembly to say, we are the ones that will finally dis uh, interpret this, is really inconsistent with the entire notion of judicial review, which is well established in Ohio. Uh, there, there are uh, uh, Ohio Supreme Court cases uh, that spelled this out pretty clearly, one from 1999, which said Ohio long ago had rejected the idea of legislative omnipotence and that it couldn't take away the jurisdiction of the courts to interpret the Constitution. I also thought it was kind of an odd suggestion because if what these opponents of issue one really wanted was to in some way effectuate uh, the laws that limited abortion, the only way they can do it is through the courts. So if they, they said the courts don't have jurisdiction over this, then how would anyone even uh, uh, you know, in a in a futile effort, try to enforce, say, the six week ban or the uh, transfer agreement provisions or the twenty four hour waiting period. They would have to do it by either prosecuting criminally or or bringing an action for liability civilly against doctors, and that would have to happen in the courts. So it's a not a very well thought out plan. I think it's completely inconsistent with any idea of limited government. Um, you know, the schoolhouse rock quote is is cute and uh, suggests that some of the members of the General Assembly could do with a basic civics uh, education on what their authority really is. Yeah, it's, again, it's just a, a few lawmakers who have signed on in this, but it did show up on the official Ohio House website right there for all to see, and it, it, it had a look of a, officialdom. It, it likely will not go anywhere, I don't think, based on what the, what the speaker said uh, this week, as, as we heard. He's, he's not going to give this serious consideration, he said. But it, so how is this likely, Dan Coble, how is this likely to play out? So voters have approved it. They approved it by a 14-point margin. It takes effect in early December, the amendment. So what's the next step? I don't think Republicans at the State House are going to repeal these laws on their own. So will it have to play out in the Supreme Court, I would assume? Well, I, I think there are a couple ways that this could play out. I, honestly, I think it's uh, a shame that the legislature and the governor are not going to move forward with at least repealing the six-week ban, which voters clearly were unhappy with and have rejected. Uh, the, the problem with not repealing these laws is that it, it creates uncertainty for physicians and for reproductive care providers because it says even if you have a constitutional 
amendment to protect you, it's possible that some zealous prosecutor could go against you and create a lot of problems for you, even if ultimately you're able to win and uh, and and do that. So the best thing they could do is to repeal the laws that are clearly inconsistent with the amendment, like the six-week ban, I think the 24-hour waiting period, I can't imagine that they could justify that on health grounds. Uh, and so I think I think the uh, uh, regulations of clinics, it would be in the interest of Ohio and society to make clear that we're not going to try to enforce these law and these laws and not tempt anyone to do that. Short of that, then what uh, attorneys for reproductive uh, 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 care physicians could do is bring a declaratory judgment action. My guess would be it would be in Cincinnati, Cleveland, or Columbus, because that's uh, where the clinics are that actually perform uh, abortions and could be subject to prosecution. So they'd bring an action for the courts to say, please declare these inconsistent with the Ohio Constitution. Here's what the Ohio Constitution says. Here's what this law says. And then it would be up to the state to come in and try to defend those laws and then ultimately perhaps appeal it all the way to the Ohio Supreme Court. Remember, the Ohio Supreme Court has, by and large, uh, almost complete control over their docket. So they don't have to take an appeal. Yeah. If the Court of Common Pleas and the Courts of Appeals in the in uh, the, the uh, particular district are, are in agreement on it, the court uh, the Ohio Supreme Court might not take it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and then there is a case involving the the six week ban that on standing, and that the court is now deciding if uh, clinics can sue on behalf of their clients, and that's that's kind of a big case in in this right now. Correct. Well, yes, although it's also possible that the court could conclude that the case is moot. They could say, well, things have changed since this lawsuit was bought, brought, and voters have now enacted this, and so we now think it's moot. So they could evade the issue if they wanted to because of the change in the Constitution uh, like that. If, On they the were, other hand, if they were to declare the case moot, would that basically nullify the six-week abortion ban, the so-called heartbeat law? No, it, would, it wouldn't It would nullify it. It would simply say, we don't have to decide this now. Okay. And so they might leave it to another day when another uh, enforcement action is brought with the six-week ban. So it would, in effect leave the six-week ban dormant, depending on how they how they disposed of the case. On the other hand, one of the things they might uh, attempt to do if they wanted to limit the ability of lawsuits to be brought is issue a very limiting standing decision to say that the only people that can bring these suits are uh, you know, physicians or women who uh, are attempting to obtain an abortion. I, I, I think that's kind of unlikely, given the way the the uh, uh, the issue one language is worded, because it says that specifically 
the state can't penalize a person or entity that assists an individual in exercising this right. So it seems like they would pretty clearly uh, be at least an entity that assists. So they likely could show the requisite standing to bring a suit. But I guess that's at yeah. least conceivable. So I guess voters have, have spoken pretty clearly. They want this row standard in the Constitution, but it's going to take some a while. Now, of course, the heartbeat law is on hold. So the old law is in effect, which basically is very closely aligned with the amendment that just passed. It, it basically allows abortion up to like 20, 22 weeks, I think. And so that's pretty close to the viability standard. But this is going to take a while to get all to get settled, right? Yeah, if ever, I guess. But well, it, it, it could well. It could be a series of battles in the court. It could affect Supreme Court races. Yep. So if the uh, justices, I mean, we saw this in Wisconsin, if a, a justice on the Ohio Supreme Court, in effect, said, I'm not going to enforce the, the, uh, the obvious language of issue one, that could create, uh, you know, an opening for an opponent to say, hey, this justice is ignoring the people's will as expressed in the amendment to the Ohio Constitution, and I will uh, enforce it if if I'm elected. So that was a big issue in Wisconsin. I, I guess it's conceivable that it could be one here, because remember, gerrymandering doesn't really help Ohio Supreme Court justices who have to run through the, uh, uh, you know, their election through the uh, entire state and persuade a majority of the voters. And as luck would have it, there are three Supreme Court races on next year's ballot. Two Democrats and one Republican are on the ballot. There might be some movement. It might be an open seat on the ballot instead of all contested. But uh, it is going to be topic number one in those races. I, I am I am positive of that. Well, Dan Coble, thanks very much for uh, giving us our basic civics lesson helping us understand what happens next now that the voters have approved issue one and what lawmakers can and cannot do and what courts may or may not do. Dan Coble from Capital University, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. It was my pleasure. We'll be right back. Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts. Time now for our Snollygoster of the Week segment, where we honor the shrewdest politician or political move of the past seven days. Because we'll be off next week, we will preemptively give it to all of those Ohio politicians who will bet their counterparts in Michigan on the outcome of the OSU-Michigan game the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Usually, it's, you know, it's a basket of Buckeyes or a tub of Grater's ice cream for the Buckeye Pauls. And Michigan Pauls put up Detroit-style pizza, some cherries from northern Michigan or, or something like that. Boring. How about this? How about betting the Browns or the Lions or the Red Wings or the Blue Jackets, the winner gets the team? move to their state. How about the losing state pay the other states tax incentives for projects like Intel's chip factories or Ford's battery plant? How about that? There's some meat on the bone. That would bring the Michigan sign-stealing scandal to a whole new level. 
But for pandering to local food producers to make silly bets, Michigan and Ohio Pauls get our Snollygoster of the next two weeks award. That'll do it for this week's edition of Snollygoster. Remember, no episode next week, but there will be a new episode of The Power Grab on this feed, so we hope you are enjoying that look into the House Bill 6 scandal. Of course, we are a proud member of the NPR Network, and as always, please be sure to give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and just tell your friends about us. For our student producer, Katie Genius, our digital producer, Michael DeBonis, and our audio engineer, Dalton Jones, I am Mike Thompson for Snollygoster from WOSU Public Media. We leave you with yet another hit from the 1970s, a hit that remains relevant today. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the Capitol City. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday. At least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill.